Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks always to God for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. I recently caught up with some friends from uh, years ago. I hadn't seen them in in years, actually, Pete and Katie. Uh, They're a couple with several children, and they were back in the UK for the first time in three years. Uh, Three years ago, they moved to Ethiopia, uh, and they work at a seminary there. Um, and I think they're really in, in, enjoying it. Um, that, that's the sense I got, at least. But um, it, it doesn't come without its challenges. Uh, and during the, fa- the last five weeks, Katie said to me that they had had no power for three of those. No power in the house. Pete then told me that about once a month, someone in the family gets seriously ill, has some sort of illness or, or sickness. And they're saying all this with a smile on their face. Um, Teaching, on the other hand, at the seminary seemed to be going all right, as far as I could tell, until I heard this story. Um, they, they told me that culturally, many Ethiopians uh, that are Christians will um, think it's not okay at all to have any alcohol and not okay at all to listen to any secular music. Okay? It's f- fair enough, all right? So this, this is due to some influences o- over time and, and, and different things like that. Uh, Pete said that one of his students was having a Bible study and that she came back to Pete and um, she was exhilarated. She says, we've been reading John and I think the person that I've been studying the Bible with has become a Christian. She doesn't listen to secular music anymore. Pete, Pete says these are the kinds of challenges that he's dealing with. He's dealing with a certain cultural framework. And the success of a Bible study was measured in the, in the, in the student's uh, decision not to listen to secular music anymore. These are the kinds of challenges that I think he was facing. And I think in different ways, um, we all face in terms of uh, sharing the gospel and really God's mission holistically. God's mission to spread the gospel, right? To save sinners, to grow his church, to take care of those who are his and protect us, to grow us up along the path of faith. All of those things that God clearly promises he will do. We have challenges to, see, to seeing those fulfilled. We have challenges in, in our own lives to participating in, in fulfilling those. And Thessalonians, this book, is really a book about God's mission. And this first chapter is particularly. 
It was written by missionaries to a people they had evangelized, who then became a church or a community of churches. Acts 17 actually tells the story. If you have a Bible, you don't need to turn there, but you can look it up later on. The first nine verses of, of Acts 17. Paul goes to a Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica for three Sabbath days, and he explains that Jesus is the Christ. And this is what we hear. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Because of this, um, many Jews got upset. So we're told immediately after that, some of the Jews get upset, they abuse, and they accuse some of the local Christians. And it turns out that Paul and Silas escape by night, and they continue their mission elsewhere. Paul and Silas then <clears throat> were not in Thessalonica for very long, and they didn't have much to go on in terms, how, how, in terms of how the Christians were doing there. Had the Romans caused more trouble for the believers in Thessalonica? Had the Jews targeted the new leaders of this church? Had people simply forgotten about Christ and slipped away from the faith? I think any of these things would be possible, and any missionary here in this room, or anyone who knows a missionary, will know the lack of confidence that can come with such ministry, the lack of confidence, the unanswered questions, the suspicions about someone's sincerity of faith, the fear of leaving people in someone else's care, or no one else's care at all. These are the sorts of challenges faced by people like Pete and Katie. And as the letter of the Thessalonians itself says in, in chapters 2 and 3, since we were torn away from you, brothers, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Thessalonians is a book about these very things. Confidence, worry, doubt regarding the mission of God. And so it's months after that initial mission as this passage describes, um, that Paul sends Timothy back to the city. He says, Timothy, go back. Um, and Timothy offers a report of the church, which is the occasion for this letter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. See those names at verse 1. These men had a mission to the Thessalonians and had received news about how the church was doing. And that news gave them reason for confidence. They were now prepared to write a letter, and so we begin. To the church of the Thessalonians and God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Uh, these writers give thanks to God uh, because he's making his mission evident. The book opens with thanksgiving because God's provided assurance of his ability to bring salvation to people and to work wonders in their lives. We give thanks, they say, because of your faith, your hope, and your love in Christ, and because of our knowledge of your election. It's these two things that Paul and his missionaries are grateful for, and it's these two things that give us the very same confidence in God's mission. Two sources of confidence, two pieces of evidence that God is succeeding in his mission. That's what I'd like to look at tonight. So um, the first is that God makes his mission evident in his people. That's the first source of confidence. He gives evidence of the success of his mission in his very people. So you'll see in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. These three words, faith, hope, and love, will remind many of you of Paul's writings when he mentions them elsewhere. It's kind of this trifecta of God's uh, blessings and of uh, Christian maturity. Um, and they might remind someone of, of, of Thomas Aquinas. Now, pastors love to mention theologians, and sometimes we fail to introduce those theologians. John Calvin says this, Charles Spurgeon wrote that, John Owen, and, and, and so on, and those sorts of things. Let me say a little bit of a word about Thomas Aquinas. He lived in the 13th century. Uh, he lived between Italy and Rome, and at that time, Paris in um, France was really the kind of hub of uh, intellectual life and uh, even um, theology for some people. So he traveled between Italy and France and went a little bit back and forth. Uh, he was a really impressive uh, thinker. He was a monk, and he became one of the most influential Christian thinkers uh, for the church at that time, and what is now the Roman Catholic Church. Um, Aquinas called these theological virtues. That's why I'm mentioning him. Faith, hope, and love, or charity. He called them theological virtues for three reasons. First, he says their object is God, inasmuch as they direct us aright to God. Second, they're infused in us by God alone. He's the one who gives us love. He gives us this faith. He gives us this hope. And third, these virtues are made known to us only by divine revelation in the scriptures. He was right to say that these are God-centric virtues, that they come from God, that they relate directly to God, and they're known only through the word of God. Faith, hope, and love. Now, I'm not going to go into debates about the Catholic and, and, and Protestant church and, and so on. But I want us to at least ask this. In our Presbyterian church, is a work of faith something that we can really talk about? A work of faith. We can think of labor of love. I know how hard it is to love people and work for that and, and, and so on. Steadfastness of hope sounds pretty straightforward, right? A steady hope in Christ. But a work of faith. A work of faith. It reminds me of Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should, as Christians, have some expectation that God's grace and that God's mission will produce real works through that faith, that he will produce the ability to do things that please him. Faith in Christ is an active faith. One preacher said, um, having received communications of grace, having received God's grace, the Christian is stirred up by it to improve upon them, that is to invest in them, to nurture them, to nurture God's grace, to the glory of his name. In a word, whatever the Christian has to do for God, he does so through the operation of this principle, by which and by which alone he overcomes the world and purifies his heart. There's indeed rooms, room for works of faith. These are works given to us by God and fulfilled with his help and power. That's only one of the ways that God makes the success of his mission evident in his people. Their faith, their hope, and their love. Look for that. We can find evidence of that as God's mission goes forward. However, and do I really need to remind us, the people of God do not always inspire confidence people of God looking around the world. Preachers in sneakers. I don't know if you've heard of this. Spelled like rock and roll, shake and bake, guns and roses. Preachers in sneakers. A Texan churchgoer slept in on a Sunday morning. 
in 2019. Something he says he doesn't do very often. And he finds himself watching church online. Now, this, this man from Texas had recently become uh, interested in sneakers, tennis shoes, trainers. Okay? And he noticed that the pastor has some very expensive shoes on. Uh, so he takes a photo of it uh, on his computer, and he puts it on Instagram. Just, just, just to kind of make a point, it's interesting, pastor's wearing these particular shoes that he knew about. And it wasn't just shoes. He kept watching different pastors, and he found one pastor wearing a Gucci sweater that cost over $1,000. One pastor was wearing boots of a similar price. Over the coming months, he found pastors wearing Air Jordans. I don't know that much about these Air Jordans, Air Yeezy 2s. And when I went on looking, I appreciated that one pastor, someone named Andy Stanley, posted his own $39 Dockers uh, sneakers on, on there that he was, that he was wearing. Uh, the New York Times isn't uh, ignorant of this um, Instagram account and wrote an article entitled the following, Let he who is out without Yeezys cast the first stone. Should pastors wear $5,000 sneakers? There's been some soul-searching recently over the materialism in houses of worship. That was the title of the article. God's people do not always inspire confidence. Let me give one more um, example. Just a couple of weeks ago, I met um, with a woman who works at OCA. I don't know if you've heard of this, the Oxford Center uh, for Christian Apologetics. Um, And I asked her... um, how are you doing with everything that's happened? Now, I had just met her. I didn't know her. I knew her name. I knew what she did. And I knew why she was there uh, at the school that day. But I felt comfortable to say, how, how are you doing, given everything that's, that's happened? Um, Alka is an organization that Ravi Zacharias founded in 2006. Some of you might be familiar with this name, Ravi Zacharias. He spent 40 years working in Christian apologetics. He published over 30 books. In 2007, when my university in America suffered a mass shooting, Ravi Zacharias was one of the first people to speak to the students. He came and gave a huge lecture. It was very, it was encouraging. I, I'll never forget that. He spoke to thousands. He, he died just about two years ago. Um, and just a few months after that, an investigation found that Zacharias had received um, sexually explicit photos from over 200 women. Now, the woman that I met that day works at the organization that he founded. So I was asking her, how are you doing, given everything that's been going on? And that organization has now cut ties with Zacharias and is trying to figure out how to go forward, given his reputation. What, what, what do they do? How should she deal with this man's reputation? What should I do with Ravi Zacharias' books that are on my shelf and that played such a profound impact in my life? Do you remember what Paul tells the Corinthians? They were getting all caught up in their leaders. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, he says, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he, knew, he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, this is a very different situation. Paul and Apollos were good influences on the church. They weren't bad influences. Or calls for no confidence. But I think that the point is... Somewhat the same. There's still a similar principle here. God uses leaders to establish and grow the church. And if there's anything we've learned through this recent leadership fallout in recent years, there are many more examples aside from the ones that I've given. It's that God can still do good through bad people. 
God uses his leaders to establish and grow the church. And yet that true growth comes from God alone. We know that the healing that is needed after these leaders have done bad things also comes from God alone. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That, that's a good saying, but it doesn't really cover it. It doesn't just cover the discouragement that can come along with Christian ministry. You can tell someone the gospel, but you can't make him believe it. You can testify to the love of Christ in word and in life, but you can't transform someone's heart. God's mission is so much beyond us, so often. And we exist amidst a very dignified and also a very depraved church. Success is really up to God. What do we do? We participate as God instructs and we celebrate God's work when we see it. When we see bad examples, we should not think that God's mission has ultimately failed. There is still hope. There is still hope. God will care for his church. This letter takes it up one additional notch. see the faith, hope, and love of God's people. But we also see that the Thessalonians are exemplary among the other churches. Verses 5 to 8 gets at this. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. If you go to verse 7, so that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Actions speak louder than words. The proof is in the pudding. A good reputation should be embraced by the church and celebrated when it's seen. It's like a gospel trampoline. The Thessalonians uh, took it in and threw it out. I'm not sure trampoline is the best uh, picture there, to bring something in and to throw it back out. They, they sort of catch the gospel, and, and they imitate a godly life, and their godly life then goes on to produce fruit, a slingshot, um, something like that. I was thinking catch and release, but that's a fishing metaphor. I don't think that's, that's really going to work, but you get the point. Um, you may not know this, but at our quarterly uh, presbytery meetings, we meet, the ministers in IPC meet um, just about every uh, quarter. Um, and um, part of the, the meeting is to share updates about, about each of the churches. Uh, and there comes a list for things to pray for uh, and things to be thankful for. So each church minister gets up and shares something. And we have IPC lists. Minister comes up and says a bit about the church, Trinity Church York, IPC Hammond Smith, and so on. There are always things to be thankful for. It's a wonderful time, actually. It's probably my favorite part of, of the Presbytery in terms of the, some of the things that we, that we do, just to hear from each church. Just earlier this month at our meeting, we heard about numerical growth among the very young church plant at Chester. We heard about encouraging evangelism and outreach in Hounslow, ownership of a building in Ilford, and hopes to formalize an extension service that's been taking place in a new city. And I know there's many things to be thankful for here, too. According to this letter, God is making the success of his mission evident in you, Thessalonians. He's inspiring confidence by working in his people. He brings about the fruit of the Spirit, and he catapults his gospel to greater distances, thanks to his church. God's people attest the success of his mission. That's the first point, and here's the second. There's only two points. This This is the second point. God makes the success of his mission evident in the power of his gospel. So in the growth of his people and in the power of his gospel. So we'll need to go back to verse 4. 
For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So this is again, we give thanks because we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Hear the confidence that's being expressed. And even more and more incredibly, uh, what it is that the writers are confident about. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. What do they know? That God has elected the Thessalonians. Why would these men give thanks to know that God has chosen the Thessalonians? When the Bible mentions election, it's associated with God justifying sinners, with becoming godly, with putting on compassion, kindness, humility, and gentleness, with having grace and peace, with becoming a child of God rather than a slave or an enemy of God, and with abundant gratitude and thanksgiving. All of those things are election things. That sounds not only good, but worth giving thanks for. This thanksgiving and knowledge is really a matter of confidence. We know you're elect. We know God's mission is succeeding. There are two primary reasons to have this kind of confidence in the, in, in the election of God's people. The first is because our gospel came to you. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you. So first, the gospel came to you. It's easy to skip over that part and think, well, it came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. But it's an essential part of what happened to the Thessalonians, just that God's gospel came to them. It was preached and it was taught. It was heard by those to whom it was delivered. Now, that alone doesn't result in a missionary knowing that God has chosen someone. But it sparks confidence and it prepares that missionary to look for the initial evidence of election. If I hand you an invitation, I'm waiting for a response. I'm looking for something. And that's the same thing that goes on. It doesn't guarantee a particular type of response, but it is going to get something. And it sets us up to look for it. So the word of the gospel came to the city, but this is the second part. It came to them with more than that. I was sick recently, and I was thinking about the different responses that you get. Um, when you tell someone you're sick, oh, I've, I've been staying home for a couple of days, I'll be out of work. Um, yeah, my family and I have just had a tough, had, had a tough go at it, I think we'll be fine in, in, in a couple of days, right? You get two different types of responses to that sort of thing. Uh, the first one is, mm, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, when do you think you'll be back at, at work again? <laughs> so that, that, that's one of the responses. The second response is, you know, oh, poor you, three exclamation points. How are your symptoms? Do you have everything you need? Can I bring some dinner over? Something like that. Which one of these people do you think received the news of your illness with power and with full conviction? Clearly the second one. In Romans, Paul says that the news itself needs to come with something more. It needs to come with something more. He says in Romans 15, I, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. That's what Paul says in light of the power of the gospel, in light of the fact that God does work through it. But God's gospel does not always seem to have power in the same way that that God's people don't always seem to live up to the exemplary faith that we hear about sometimes and to hear about in Thessalonians. It seems that Paul might be ambitious, but God doesn't always seem to be ambitious, as if God needs to get with the program. 
The gospel doesn't always work. Now, there's, there's a lot of things I could, I could say about this, the discouragement that comes with that, some of the stuff I was talking about uh, being a minister, and that's not particular to me being a school chaplain. That happens to ministers everywhere, okay? The kind of discouragement that says, I, I, I think I'm doing what God wants me to do, um, whether it's in, in, in the workplace for full-time ministers, for not full-time, whatever it is. Um, we have these promises about the gospel, um, and it doesn't always seem to all I can really say and will say now is that it, it's really up to God. It's really up to God. Um, I can offer com- comfort and encouragement in him. Think of something like Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I think when God's people are looking for certain types of comfort, for looking for assurance from God that what he's called us to do and asked us, for and even what we've received doesn't seem to be coming through so to speak that God will be there that God will be present with us and that we entrust the results to him in a word we just get on with it we just do the work that God has asked us to do and we trust him so God himself that's what I'd like to offer you this morning Paul Silvanus and Timothy they give thanks for what they've seen among the Thessalonians They've witnessed God's mission succeeding, right? These Christians have faith in God. They have hope in Christ. They have love for one another and for God. They receive the missionaries preaching with conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit, and their way of life has basically propelled this success further afield. This chapter ends with a report about those results. So verses 9 and 10 actually kind of go back, and it's one more reason for thanksgiving, and it's a little snapshot into the transformation that initially occurred among God's people. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the shape of God's mission. And I'd encourage you at some point this week to reflect on these verses. These are, these, are, these are worth memorizing. They're worth reflecting on. Turn, serve, and wait. That's the shape of God's mission. Turning from idols, right? Those objects of things that we give worship. To turn from those is to turn to God and to serve him alone. That's the wonderful thing about the Christian life. It is a, it's a God-shaped life. It is all around him. And God puts all of our life in order through that. He makes certain things more important, other things less important, but we know where things in life stand. And finally, we wait. We wait for the arrival of Christ from heaven, for a glorious end to all of this stuff, for the ups and downs of church life, for the discouragements and encouragements of gospel ministry, and so on, however that looks for you. That's the end of the mission. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's a joyous thing. It's something we should have steadfast hope for. God has given us every reason to do so. All along that mission, in your works of faith, your labor of love, the good examples of following Christ and the bad examples, Christ is our hope and Christ is our confidence. So let's come to him now in prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, we give thanks, Lord, that your mission is yours. We pray um, that we would be obedient, Lord, that we would be repentant, Father, that we would seek to participate in uh, your great mission um, to this world. 
Uh, Lord, let us wait with great hope and expectation for the returning of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing our final hymn, Before the Throne of God Above.